Uh, lastly, we are, we're in a series, if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to actually begin message now. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, open them to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 2. And we are continuing, this is our fourth week in our Advent series. We do this every year um, where we, uh, we, yeah, we go through a, a story, a various scripture about the coming of Jesus Christ at Christmas um, 2017 years ago. We call it our Advent series. Um, we put all of our messages online, so if you're looking for a podcast and you want to hear the whole series, you can go to this website here, uh, therocksquamish.com forward slash Advent 2017, and you can listen to all the messages, including this one today that will be recorded and put up. So, four weeks we've been in it, and interestingly, what we decided to do this year, which is kind of neat, is that we decided to go to the Gospel of Luke. Um, usually we go to the various Gospels, and tonight in some of the readings we will look at other Scripture related to the coming of Jesus um, so many years ago. Uh, but this year we decided, well, we'll start the Gospel of Luke, too, at the same time, because interestingly, it leads up perfectly to the birth of Jesus on the 25th of December, on our calendar anyway, for Advent. So we've been in it, this is the fourth week now that we've been in it, and today we arrive at chapter 2. And we're going to read, I'm going to read the whole passage for you this morning, verses 1 to 20, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to break into it and look at exactly what this Word of God is telling us today. So let's read with me, if you have your Bibles with you, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. I'll read them and later put some of them back up on screen. Let me read for you. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And laid him, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased." Well, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph, the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for this day. Father, thank you for this record. 
this record that Dr. Luke has written down that the Holy Spirit has inspired him to, to speak to the eyewitnesses in that day and record exactly what had happened in his letter and his book. So, Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for this wonderful uh, message of the coming of your Son at this time into this world. And we just pray, Lord, today as we look at this story and unpack it a little bit, we pray that you would bless us and encourage us from it. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So it's, it's an interesting process that we've been at. What we've seen so far in the gospel uh, in chapter 1, uh, Luke starts off by telling us that he's writing this letter, this book, to a dear friend of his, of his whose name is Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus is a Greek. Uh, he's like Luke, who's also Greek. He's not Jewish. He uh, did not know Jesus, hadn't met Jesus, as Luke hadn't. Um, but he's a skeptic who's now come to faith in Christ and Luke, as well, wants now him to have certainty about the things that he's been taught. That's how he introduces this letter, is that, Theophilus, I want you to know for sure what you've been taught about Jesus is true. Not just about Jesus, but all the things that take place surrounding the coming of Jesus and then his life and ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection, and on. And so he starts with, interestingly, he starts with this angel, Gabriel, showing up. An angel, yes, Skeptic Theophilus, you should be aware that an angel literally showed up, and first he speaks to Zechariah and, and to Zechariah and his wife and tells them they're going to have a baby and a child. A miraculous birth is going to happen for them, even though she's been barren all of her life and they're both in their 80s, 90s, maybe more in age. And so he announces a very miraculous birth. And then he, the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary, Luke tells us, and tells her this 14-year-old Jewish girl who's a virgin, betrothed to a man, but still a virgin, that she's going to have a child. And this child is going to be the Savior of the world. And of course, the way that they both responded, you can listen to the messages and hear how that went down. But now what we see is all of these things leading up to this point in chapter 2. And what I think we're going to see today is that the truth is, is that what's happening is that in a way that God has never done before, he is breaking into our world in a way that He never has before. He's breaking into our world. So I think as usual with this text, as with all of Luke's texts, there is much more going on here than what we read. Uh, we hear these words read, and most of us, for most of us, I think there's a familiarity, right? We, you've heard this story probably every Christmas. Somebody has read this passage, hopefully some of you on Christmas morning, before you start tearing the wrapping off of the, the presents, the gifts, you read about the gift giver, right? You maybe read this passage. And I want to encourage you that maybe this is a great passage that you should read tomorrow morning. But I think it, it, after countless messages about the birth of Jesus 2,017 years ago, it's possible that we may have romanticized the story in our minds, right? You know, like, like a Christmas card version of Christmas, what it's all about, right? Uh, you know, either come to some lovely scene in a barn, you know, where there's lots of hay, Mary and Joseph kneeling beside baby Jesus there in the trough in the, in the manger, Mary not looking too bad for the wear that she's just been through, trekking 80 miles and giving birth. But she looks pretty good, you know, in that, that Christmas card, in that postcard, right? And the scene is amazing. It's very heartwarming. It's very heartwarming. Or or it's possible, you've maybe heard someone preach this, you know, kind of a you know, serious guy. We see a rather tragic situation where there's no place for them. 
After again, Mary has trekked these 80 miles up mountains and over mountains and maybe on the back of a donkey, bouncing around. No wonder she gave birth. And, and the story just becomes, you know, really, really difficult. They get there and there's no place for them in the inn because this innkeeper is kind of a meanie and he, he tells them, look, out into the barn with you and have your baby out there. And sure, there are some shepherds who come afterwards, and that's kind of lovely, but by the same token, you know, the idea is, is that, well, they're kind of the, the lowest on the food chain in society at that time, so, well, I guess that's supposed to symbolize the fact that, you know, Jesus comes for the, the lowly and the humble, and it's true, but it's possible um, that those are one of the two impressions we are left with. And I want to suggest to you this morning that unfortunately, or fortunately, <laughs> both of those pictures are not completely true or accurate. There's some truth in them, whether we romanticize it and turn it into something lovely and beautiful, which it really was difficult, or we make it more difficult than it really was, and so forth. And we, we miss the true meaning. So, let's consider the backstory this morning. That's what I'd like to do with you. Uh, I've titled this message, What Really Happened That First Christmas? And I want to show you some things from this passage that I think are awesome and remarkable, and will just give us a greater appreciation for who God is, what He has done, and the true meaning of this passage. So I hope in, in conclusion to show you that there are three key, thing, three key things that did happen on this day in history, and also three ways that we can apply it to our lives today. So let me put the first three verses back on screen for you, and let me just check that there. There we go. In those days, Luke writes, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that, look at this, all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Whenever, honestly, I read this text or any, any text related to the birth of Christ, I, I remember my seminary days, and for some of you who don't know this, I, I spent 30 years in the marketplace in business and as a businessman, and then 12 years ago felt called to full-time ministry, went to seminary. So it's not that long ago for me, even though you know, I obviously don't look like the youngest buck up here, but... I remember being in seminary, and, but with a bunch of young bucks around me, you know, who are studying to become pastors and, and so forth. And I remember we got to this whole point of the birth of Jesus and Christmas 2,000 years ago, and, and the question hit the table. The question that was on the table was, why did God choose that time in history? Like, why then, right? Like, why not for the Jewish people, it would have been, they would have been like 500, 1,000 years earlier. Why not that? that? That would have been, we were waiting for you. Why didn't you come? Right? Or why not now when there's Facebook and Instagram and, boy, the word could get out more quickly, right? Why then, at that particular time in history, did he decide to come? Well, we, we had some great conversations, and I could share some of them, the results of that with you some other time. But the bottom line is, the conclusion that we came to is, because that's when God planned it. It's deeper than that, but that's the simple answer. Because that is actually when God planted. It wasn't like God was like, okay, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father I'm talking about here. It's a really a mess. Now we've got to deal with this. No, it was always part of God's plan. In other words, what we must see if we see nothing else in this story is that all along it's about God's providence. He planned this. Detail after detail, He planned these events so it's encouraging. So, so here we have this guy, Caesar Augustus, decreeing what? Well, look carefully again at the words. He declares that all the world should be registered. 
It's really important, these words that are placed there. They're important. All the world should be registered that Jesus would arrive at the time of this particular Caesar is very revealing in God's plan. Because all the world in that day, all the world in that day was the empire of Caesar Augustus, at least the known world. It was under his domain, his dominion. He was king. He was emperor of the whole world. So that's incredibly important. Caesar Augustus is his name, but his real name was Octavian. He was the great-grandnephew of Julius Caesar, some historical people. So these are real historical people, right? And and he had a reputation for both being rather uh, ruthless, uh, being a great warrior, and also being a, a brilliant man. He rose to power by defeating Mark Antony and Cleopatra, again, historical figures. And then he ruled his kingdom, quite frankly, with an iron fist. And he also uh, had this great keen mind, and so he was quite a diplomat. Uh, He was quite progressive in his ways as far as uh, providing services for people in the major cities of the world. But he's a bit of an enigma to historians in that he did accomplish many, 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 many great things for the people, uh, but others suggest that it's as ludicrous as saying Adolf Hitler had some redeeming qualities because he was ruthless and brutal to people who got out of hand. So what's most interesting is this. He was the first Caesar of all the Caesars to be given the title Augustus, which the word literally means holy and revered. So he is emperor Caesar, king Caesar, holy and revered. He was given that title. And so so people were to address him that way. Oh, dear emperor, king, holy and revered. Caesar Augustus was how they would actually um, call him and, and, and speak about him. But what is also interesting is that on his, I believe, 25th birthday, so he's a young ruler, uh, September 23rd, they decided to bestow upon him a new title. And this title was really interesting because now he'd, he'd been a little bit brutal, but really, really good, and they want the good to increase. So they now gave him the title at 25 years of age on September 23rd of... Savior of the world. Go figure. Isn't that interesting? Actually, uh, historians believe that December 25th is not the real birthday of Jesus, right? We've turned it into that because of solstice and a bunch of other things. It's okay. We didn't, they're not sure, but it's actually more likely that he was born in September. <laughs> Some of you know your history and your Bibles. That's really good to see. So now remember this. Dr. Luke is a historian. He's a documentarian, right? He's recording this. He's a physician. He's a theologian. He's prefacing the birth of Christ with much more than historical context here, right? Much more. He's opening, his opening to this movement in the story is intended to demonstrate a serious contrast. I mean, it's not just him, the Holy Spirit. It's the planning of God that's providing this serious contrast. And it's a contrast between two kingdoms and two kings. God planned it at this time in history with this guy in charge. It's a great contrast. It's amazing. So now out goes Caesar Augustus' decree. It's the first registration under Quirinius, the governor, um, and every citizen is then required to go to their place of birth where they were born to be registered. So look at it again. Here's what we've got. 
we've got this king of kings. I'm talking Caesar Augustus, the emperor, the king of all kings that they've ever wanted, ever in history. Not that we want anyone like that to come along today. Not the bad guy, but the really good guy, right? That'll give us all the things that we want. No, we're, we're so far past that. He's the king of kings. He's a Caesar, a governor. And then look, millions of plebs, citizens, who are under the ruling thumb of this virtual dictator are required to come to be registered so that he knows where everybody is, what they're doing, how much money they've got so he can tax them. Boy, things have changed and are so wonderful today, aren't they? Not so much. The story goes on in verses 4 and 5 and says this, And Joseph also went up to Galilee, uh, from Galilee, pardon me, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Look at this. Because he was of the house and of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Someone asked me a few weeks ago, so wait a sec, she's a virgin, but like, when did they actually get married? <laughs> and, and that's a good question. It was really a good question because there's nowhere in Scripture where it actually says they, okay, on this date, in between here, whatever, they got married. But what we do know is this, is that at this point in time, she is with Joseph uh, they are traveling together, so the, the reality is they are probably, as far as Jewish custom is concerned, they are married, even though there's a lot of talk back there in Nazareth about them, but they're married and they're traveling together. But the reason why the Scripture tells us that she is still his betrothed because she is with child is because they have not known each other physically yet. She's a virgin, and he will not have relations with her until after Jesus is born. So Caesar Augustus's decree has a tremendous impact on at least one family, right? This one family in particular. Mary and Joseph have had to make the 80-mile trek, that's approximately how far it was, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which does include some mountainous terrain. It was a difficult trek. They have to leave their comfortable home. I mean, Joseph, we know, was a carpenter. They probably had a, a modest but a comfortable home, a lot more comfortable than where they're going to end up for the birth of their child. Uh, this is where I think the deeper picture becomes really, really wonderful. All Old Testament prophecies, all Old Testament prophecies point to the fact that the coming Messiah would be from the lineage of David, precisely from the lineage of David, including a few other factors. I mean, previously we learned that the angel Gabriel told Mary this about her son that she was going to have. In chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, it says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne, the throne of his father, I'm going to put in there King David, right? And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, Gabriel also told Zechariah that Jesus would be known as the horn of salvation from King David's house. But there's one prophecy that makes it clearly necessary that the Messiah must be born from and through this royal lineage and somewhere in particular. And those of you who know who your minor prophets, you'll know Micah from chapter 5, verse 2, prophesied centuries before the birth of Christ, this. But you, O Bethlehem. Now, this, this Jewish historians, Jewish 
um, rabbis in the day, when this prophet spoke this, they're like, God's going to bring his Messiah through little tiny Bethlehem? Guys, this is like Spuzzum, B.C. Like, like maybe Creston, okay? It's a little nicer, but people who live in Spuzzum don't like me anymore. But I mean, this is the reality. Is this, this, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, prophesied actually in Genesis 3.16. That's how long God has been promising to send a Savior since we in Adam and Eve rebelled against God, rebelled against Him. He's been making this promise. So let's be sure that we see this. This is important. As you look at the details here, okay? Mary and Joseph would have known their Old Testament. Joseph is probably four to five years older than Mary. They are from faithful Jewish families. They would have known their Old Testament. Mary was told that the Lord God would give him the throne of David. There's Micah's prophecy that surely they had heard, but maybe like other Jewish people, they'd kind of go, I don't know about that. But listen, clearly, in this gospel and all the others, there is no evidence whatsoever that they, Mary and Joseph, had any plans to be in Bethlehem to give birth to Jesus. They had no plan to be there. And, and yet, they're the ones carrying, she is, carrying the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, this is important because Micah's prophecy would have stood out for anyone. Of course, those, those Jewish rabbis who had previously had said, Bethlehem, we're not so sure about that. It, if Jesus had not been born in Bethlehem, they would have clearly pointed at Micah's prophecy and said, well, you see, they're kind of fickle that way, aren't they? They would have. And it would have discounted. So that's important. And then there's this. Then there's this. What really happens on that day in history is that a man who is the ruler of the whole world, a man, a human, a man who is the Augustus, the people's savior, he's just going to go about his own thing. He's going to think that, well, you know, this is a good time. I think this is a good time to have a census, right? Make sure that we know where everybody lives and where everybody, who everybody is and all the new births and how much land people have, I mean, transactions to be making, and so that we can tax them before the end of the year. It would be awesome, right? He's just going about his own business, and in his mortal wisdom and as a way to maintain control over his people in his kingdom, he issues this decree that requires Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. That's what's really going on here, Right? That's pretty good, isn't it? That, that's what we've been looking at a few times in this series, which tells us this is true. God works all things out for what? <laughs> for His good and our good. He's completely in control of these things. So, friends, listen, I'm sure today, I don't know about you, but I mean, if you look at the news and you look at what's going on in our days, when we look at events in our world and we think, can it possibly get any worse? I know there are sunny days and there are sunny ways, but seriously, can it get any worse? The, the conflict in our world, the, 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 the grabbing after power and money and wealth in our world, I mean, can it possibly get 
any worse. There are threats out there in these days, it seems like never before, where one thing could lead to another and, and a conflict could break out that could be, quite frankly, cataclysmic. cataclysmic. People could, could, millions of people could die if some crazy people push buttons. Those are the days that we live in. But clearly, we have no reason to fear, right? We, Christians, have no reason to fear whatsoever. The birth of Jesus Christ demonstrates the complete, the complete providence and sovereignty of God. It does. Do you see that? I really hope you do this morning. It goes on in verses 6 to 7 in Luke's account, and says this, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And so, with very little fanfare, what is that? That's three verse, two verses, right? The birth of Jesus is recorded into history by Dr. Luke. That's it. He's born. And as I mentioned earlier, it is here that we could romanticize this picture. Uh, we could produce the ultimate Christmas card uh, with swaddling clothes and a rough-hewn manger laid with hay in that classic family scene. Mary looking, as I've already said, no worse for wear. But this brings us to what really is going on here. Why does Luke give us these details? Why the swaddling clothes? Why the manger? What are these details all about? And rather than get caught up in the Christmas card, we need to see that there's much more going on here, and we see this in the second part of the story, where it becomes a little clearer. In verses 8 and 9, it says this, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, so this is important. Just even those words right there, I just want to highlight this for you. There are shepherds, yes, but they're out in a field. They're, they're outside of the city gates. They're, they're outsiders. <laughs> they're, they're still within the emperor's kingdom, but they're, they're kind of outside of where all the action's taking place, and they're out there. They are shepherds, yes. Keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So Luke, actually the Holy Spirit, takes us to a place just, just on the outskirts of town to another encounter between the angel Gabriel, we believe, because he's the consistent angel of the Lord in this story, but this time with some shepherds. And, and yes, it's true that shepherds were not very high up there on the food chain, um, but it's not true that they were despised in that day. Many, many, many centuries later, maybe 200 A.D., 300 A.D., it became such, where, you know, it's like today there are people who were um, uh, manufacturing and, and, certain, and they're looked down upon because of what they were manufacturing in our society in the last maybe 10, 20, 30 years. Coal, it could be any number of things, right? Miners, this kind of thing. But shepherds became looked upon at that, but not at this time. But the reality is, is that the truth is, they were by nature poor, humble, but also this, hardworking, normal people. Normal people. Gabriel appears to them. The angel of the Lord appears to them. They are naturally like Zachariah was, and Mary a little bit, but Zachariah, the older man, they were petrified. He was petrified. The shepherds were. 
They were petrified. But he assures them they, look, have nothing to worry about. And then he says these wonderful words to them. He says, fear not, for behold, major announcement, I bring you good news. I bring you good news of great joy that will be, look, for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Hmm. Now, many commentators believe uh, that these shepherds may have been caring for the sheep that would have been actually part of the temple sacrifice. Um, So they were faithful Jews who were waiting They were waiting, faithful Jews, who were waiting for this kind of good news. They've been waiting 400 years since the the, the prophet Malachi had said that he was coming, and there was nothing for 400 years. So they, these lowly and humble shepherds, are the very first people that God, that God of the universe, decides to share his good news with. That's important. It's key. And then as if an angel of the Lord isn't enough. I mean, imagine, right? He, white, glowing, uh, non-human. You know, this is, this is beyond the last Jedi, okay? This is amazing stuff showing up in front of you. We, 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 you know, we, we look at these angels, and we saw some pictures there and in the video, and, you know, no, this is a powerful, mighty, it's not even extraterrestrial is not the right word because he's not terrestrial. He's heavenly, shows up in front of them. But then if that's not enough, we read in verse 14, right? A large number of angels came and joined joined Gabriel saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So I think this is kind of funny actually. Some people say that the arrival of Jesus 2017 years ago on that night, lacked the typical fanfare of, of, you know, accorded to a royal son, you know, like, like the like Buckingham Palace would put on, right? When, when a prince is born, or at least the announcement of a new kingly heir. Really? <laughs> Multitudes of angels. Multitudes of angels. But here's the thing. It's just a small audience, just a small number of shepherds. The fanfare was glorious. The fanfare was mighty. God breaking into history in a way that had never been done before, but just a few, just a few witnessed it. Well, the shepherds must have been tremendously overwhelmed, but it appears As quickly as the angels had arrived, they left. And the the obvious decision of the shepherds is, we've got to go. We've got to go. Did you just see that? Did you just hear that? We've got to go to Bethlehem. So they go to Bethlehem, and they, they go. But wait, question is this. Where would they know to look? Now, it's a small town, truly. It's only a town of probably 200, 250 people, but... Everyone who had been born there in the last generation has come home. Has come home. Well, there was a clue given, wasn't there? I skipped over it. Read it earlier, but I skipped over it. There was a clue given by Gabriel 
to the shepherds, and it was this. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So it's not just a thing that we use on a postcard to make it look wonderful. It's a clue, right? It's a clue. And so what we, what we first saw is possibly a, a simple part of the picture of where Jesus was born. We now see that the Holy Spirit used it. The Holy Spirit, God providentially required that they would be in this place, that the baby would be wrapped in swaddling clothes, that he'd be laid not in a bed but in a manger. Why? Well, listen, there were many people brought there. There were probably other babies born, if not on that night in the days just before, who had come home for this registration. How would they know which baby it was? This is what really happened. They were given a clue, and they came, and this is how they found Jesus, because this is how the Holy Spirit wanted them to find Jesus. I don't know about you, but I find that remarkable. It's like detail, right down to the finest detail. So as the story concludes, we read that the shepherds, they find Mary and Joseph right where they're supposed to be, beside the baby lying in a manger. And so finally after that, we read that they told all that had gathered around by that time what they'd heard from the angel, that this child is the long-awaited Messiah. He is from the lineage of David. He is the king who has been born. And they're pretty excited about it. And we read these really wonderful words because of their testimony, because of how God had planned all this. This is what really happened. And this, I think, is one of the most important points of this whole story, besides Jesus being born, which is the most important point. But it's this. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. Now, let's remember, she's 14, 15 at the most at this point. And, and she's been told she's carrying the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That's a huge responsibility, right? Uh, let alone being a mother at that young age and having to bear a child and, and then raise the child, knowing that he is going to be the, the Savior and wondering how is God going to work all this out she probably still, after nine months of not hearing anything, needed some assurance, don't you think? Don't you think? What kind of an assurance would this be to her? When, when we see these words, the Greek words for treasured and, and pondering, that the difference between the two is, is one is not pondering and questioning, pondering and putting it all together, but treasuring is holding on to it. Now I've got this because I'll tell you what, over the next 34 years of his life, she's going to need to treasure that truth. Because it's not going to be easy for her watching her son be rejected. So here's the three things that happened on this night. Three things that clearly happened. First and foremost is we've seen this. God clearly is the one who sovereignly and providentially orchestrated the birth of his son. Every single detail. Every single detail. That's who he is. And remarkably to me, honestly, and I try to figure these things out, I don't know about you, but you got Caesar Augustus just going about his own business. And so there's, you know, this is one of the seminary discussions, right? Is, is God just stirring his mind and saying, Octavian, I'm not going to call you Augustus, but by the way, issue a census. Right? 
Or is God, in His providence and His foreknowledge, knows that's what He will do, and He lines everything else up, including the day that Jesus would be born. To, who, who knows? But God's providence and how He works it out is the key. So that's number one. God sovereignly orchestrated the birth of His Son. That's what really happened at that time. Secondly, God sovereignly gives comfort and assurance to those He loves. Do you see that? I mean, to the shepherds, come on. I mean, these are faithful men, hardworking, faithful Jewish men, and they are the first to know. It's like the women who arrive at the tomb, right? The first ones to know that Jesus is risen from the dead. That's assuring. That's comforting. But also, he, God, God sovereignly and providentially uses the shepherds through the angels, this great announcement to go back and give Mary and Joseph assurance and comfort. Thirdly, here's what really happened on this day, and I think this is critical. The king arrived, <laughs> the king of kings and lord of lords, the savior of the whole world, arrived on that day. Dominion has been initiated, and listen, the battle is on. <laughs> the battle is on. The rule and reign of King Jesus has begun. And that's why prophecies that we read, like Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verses 6 and 9, which I'm sure we will see tonight in our story, right, where it says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and look, the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end. He's the one. He's the one. I mean, we already heard it in the reading earlier today from Matthew chapter 2, right? The story of the Magi, right? Where the Magi show up, these magicians, and they're really astronomers. They were looking from the days of Daniel. They're looking for the Messiah to come and looking for a sign in the heavens. They find it, and they show up in Herod, King Herod of Jerusalem, into his palace and go, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? As an infant, Jesus is a threat to Herod. Why? Do I say that? Because Herod goes and kills every child under two years of age in Judea just to try to get rid of his rival. Battle is on. The battle's on. So even as a child, he's a threat. Three applications, three things. Let me leave you with these really quickly before we close. I think number one thing that we need to see, and this is from the shepherds, we need to hear well. We need to hear the Word of God well. We need to hear the story well. You see, their response is the response of men who heard well. Yes, okay, come on. They had the, the, the amazing, you know, Star Wars experience. They did. They, they had the angels, multitudes, millions literally, come and praise God in their presence. But they heard well, and they overcame their fear, and they went and did what? Told other people. They preached the good news. They heard well, and the response to hearing well is to go and preach God's Word. Secondly, number one, hear well. Secondly, make peace. We're called as Christians to be peacemakers in our world today, but it's very important that we understand that when we read about peace in the Bible, peace assumes that there's a conflict or that there was a conflict or there is an ongoing conflict, right? 
In the Bible, it's not a human peacefulness. It's not prosperity, happiness, a trouble-free life, you know, sitting on a beach with a drink with an umbrella in it, you know, like, oof, boy, I'm at peace with the world. That's not the peace we're talking about here, right? Peace means the end of enmity, strife, and warfare. In Isaiah's prophecy, he tells us how God sees the world for what it really is. It's in darkness. It's in darkness. Just before what I read for you earlier in verse 2 of chapter 9 of Isaiah, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This is the prophecy of when Jesus comes. The people who walked in darkness under Caesar Augustus have seen a great light. Those who dwell who dwelt, past tense, in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So let's be clear here. The first peace that has to happen is the peace between you and I and God. That's why Jesus comes this way the first time, is to provide that opportunity. That's the peace that we need to have that He came to provide for you and I. Peace between us and our Heavenly Father. He's given 2,000 years of opportunity for that. Many have received that peace and are with Him in peace today. My prayer and hope for you this Christmas is that you will receive that peace. You will receive that peace. Lastly, number three, and I'll close with this. Have no fear. (laughs) Have no fear. Three times the angel Gabriel shows up to people in that day, to Zechariah, to Mary, and at this time to the shepherds. And each time he says, have no fear. I realize I'm a big angel. I am something you've never seen before. But have no fear. I come from God for you. God came in the flesh and dwelt among us. Have no fear. Have no fear. Make peace with God. He's provided it for you. Live with no fear. Pray with me, would you?